This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens Healthineers, shaping the future of healthcare. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert and Kayak CEO Steve Hafner join the Post to discuss the future of travel and live events. Let's listen. Hi again, everyone. I'm Jackie Alamani, anchor of the Power Up newsletter at the Washington Post. I'm delighted to welcome another one of our guests today, Steve Hafner. He's the CEO of Kayak, also runs Open Table. Welcome to the program, Steve. Hi, Jackie. Great to be here. Millions of Americans are finally traveling again. They traveled by air over the Memorial Day weekend, making it really the busiest time for air travel since the pandemic began. Do you expect to see summer air travel resume to pre-pandemic numbers, at least in the United States? The indications certainly are there. I mean, we had days uh, last week at Kayak where our search volume was actually up versus 2019 domestically. So I, I think the leisure demand certainly is there, particularly for domestic markets. International leisure, I think, will take some time to develop. And the real question, especially for the airline, is what happens with business travel exactly? Sorry, Steve, I had a little bit of trouble hearing the end of that answer there, but uh, I want to ask you about an announcement that Kayak just made that you guys are going to open a hotel in Miami Beach. Can you talk a little bit about that venture and how you're using technology to shape on-site guest experiences in a post-pandemic world? Sure, Jackie. We actually opened the hotel April 1st, so it's been operational now for a little over two months. Uh, it's an interesting question, you know, why should a flight medicine company like Kayak be opening hotels, what business do we have in that? And it actually stemmed from uh, an insight that we had as travelers, which is small hotels are great hotels, but they can't really keep up with the big chains in terms of technology. So the, many of them don't have apps, they have antiquated check-in and check-out procedures, um, and they, they lag behind in a, in a lot of the other amenities that big hotels have. So we thought, well, why can't Kayak solve that problem for them? And what better way to start than by learning the business by operating our own hotel. So it's open, it's in Miami Beach, it's a great hotel experience first and foremost, but it also features a lot of new technology through our, the Kayak app. That's not where you're zooming in from right now, is it? I noticed the interesting facade behind you. No, I'm actually in our headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut, and it, it's inspired by an airline fuselage that we saw in Amsterdam Airport. And during the pandemic, we saw brick and mortar businesses, unfortunately, go out of business and transition to a more digital presence. Kayak obviously has, has been a digital first business, making a venture now into brick and mortar. Why was this the right moment to make the jump? You know, it's something we've been thinking about for a couple of years, and actually we accelerated our efforts with COVID. Um, so, you know, what you saw with the pandemic is a lot of people started using digital um, aspects, not just the shop, but also to change their consumer behaviors. Like, you know, going to a restaurant, you now are familiar with scanning a QR code to see the menu and to order from an app and to pay from an app. And the same thing is happening in travel. So we thought we could take that expertise that we have in technology and bring it to, to independent hotels. So this is not for the Marriott's and the Hilton's of the world. They've got pretty good apps already. But this, this is for the independent hotels that are often great places to stay, like Kayak Miami Beach, that could use a little uh, heft on the technology side. 
And the European Union recently announced that it is going to allow vaccinated Americans to travel in certain parts of Europe this summer, uh, so long as and the American has proof of vaccination. Since the U.S. isn't issuing a similar requirement for travel, could you see airlines trending, trending towards requiring uh, vaccination certificates or passports? Uh, absolutely. I think airlines, first and foremost, want to get demand back and start flying those routes. And anything that gives consumers comfort that they're in a safe operating environment um, is, is something the airlines will, will do on a voluntary basis. So there's a couple of different paths forward on, on vaccine passports. First off, there's, there's, they're almost all app-based with QR codes that link your, your test results or your lab results to uh, your vaccination status. And then when you get to the airport, the airline can scan that. And when you get to your destination, the customs or in, immigration um, agents can scan that as well. So I think it's a, it's a great step forward. And uh, you know, there's a couple of different standards out there, but, but they will be adopted. I'm actually curious how much of um, the traffic on kayak is uh, from is it domestic Americans who are planning trips overseas versus people using kayak, um, you know, across across the globe uh, in Europe and Central America, for example. Yeah, the bulk of our business typically these days is domestic, and if you look at our our domestic queries, so that's U.S. travelers staying within our our borders. We're only down about 15% versus uh, 2019. Some days we're actually up. Uh, international travel, so U.S. Uh, folks going uh, outside of the U.S. is still down 45% for 2019. It, it varies quite a bit by destination. You know, you can't really go get to France right now, although tomorrow you can if you're vaccinated. Uh, but you can certainly get anywhere in the Caribbean, and that's where we've seen actually query volumes above 2019 levels for those those countries. Are you able to tell um, from the data that you guys have how much of this is how much of this domestic uh, searching is for business as opposed to leisure and, and what that breakout is like? We can't because we don't uh, ask our, our users to tell us what the purpose of their trip is. But if we look at the travel or query parameters, you know, what's the number of days in advance purchase, how long are you staying for, uh, we can discern what's business travel. So usually shorter than seven day advanced purchase and you're staying one night, it's a business destination. That's that's business travel. And that is down markedly, particularly in the, the big cities like New York, Chicago, uh, LA, San Francisco. So when, when people are traveling right now, it's primarily for leisure. Although since so many people are used to working from remote, I suspect they're doing a little bit of business while they're there as well. And new research has come out uh, indicating that people with certain autoimmune conditions, blood disorders, some cancers, and transplant recipients are not creating the antibodies against the virus after being fully vaccinated. You know, this pandemic has really highlighted the importance of considering the safety net of the most vulnerable among us. In light of that, do you think that airlines and airports should still be enforcing social distancing measures like blocking middle seats, uh, keeping masks on for an indefinite period of time, things like that? I don't because for the folks who are vaccinated and where the, they produce antibodies, they're not at risk to fellow travelers. In, in, in fact, they're the, the safest folks you want to be around. And I also don't think the airline operating model is sustainable if, if middle seats aren't available for sale because, you know, fares would just have to rise too much to, to sustain that. Uh, I, I do think and hope that some of the good consumer behaviors that we've shown that work during this pandemic, like social distancing, 
like staying home when you're not feeling well, persist because that will protect us not just against COVID-19, but also flu and, and, and other uh, contagious diseases. And the U.S. is doing okay and Europe is doing relatively well with the vaccine rollout, uh, although we haven't yet hit President Biden's um, stated goals uh, of the percentage of population that he would like to see vaccinated. But some popular international destinations like Brazil and India are, are still doing quite poorly. What is your outlook for global air travel, considering the challenges facing these countries, in addition to the lower efficacy in some of the international vaccines like the ones China is using? I think each country is going to have its own domestic challenges for travel, but I think international travel to those countries by vaccinated travelers will probably be the first thing that comes back. So if, if you're a vaccinated American and you uh, need to go to India or Brazil, you can do that safely now uh, without concern for your, for your you know, own personal situation or bringing something back to the U.S. in terms of a variant. Uh, but I, you know, I'm eager to see the U.S. Um, vaccine supply start getting diverted to other countries that desperately need it because I think we, we have the logistical and operational chops to, to, to help those countries in a major way. When you became CEO of Kayak, was it ever in your mind uh, that you would have to navigate and lead a company through a, pa a pandemic, especially a travel company at that? Uh, no, no. But in my prior life, I, I also helped start a company called Orbitz. And uh, just six months into launching that, we had 9-11 happen, which is a big disruption. And then a few years later, we had this Icelandic volcano blow up and, and halt air travel to Europe. So. You know, we, we have macro events that, that tend to occur in travel, particularly since it's a, a, a global business in, in nature. Uh, nothing on the scale of COVID, and I hope we don't see it again. But uh, I'm very proud of the way uh, the good folks at Kayak and OpenTable, my colleagues, have navigated this crisis. Did you, any, did you make any specific hires um, that are strictly focused on the pandemic and how it uh, might travel, uh, you know, across borders through flights and traveling? Uh, not specific hires. I, I'd say we had a, a pretty early window, like a lot of other companies, into how this pandemic might spread because we do have operations in Asia. And, you know, we had had past experience with, with other viruses like the swine flu um, and SARS. So we, we knew what a virus could do to our business and to travel demand. Um, we obviously didn't predict how big this would become, but we saw it. In, in real time unfolding in APAC. And then once it finally got to the US, we, we started saying, gosh, we, we need to rethink our, our staffing, our overhead, our marketing, et cetera. And we were, we were very nimble and quick to, to make the required changes there. And then we also were very nimble and quick to make the required product changes to, to help folks who were traveling and also to help people shift from booking flights on kayak to booking hotels and cars on kayak. Someone who, uh really covered the economic devastation of the pandemic. I'm really curious to ask you about um, what you saw in your capacity overseeing Open Table. Early on in the pandemic, you had predicted that 25% of restaurants wouldn't survive. According to the National Restaurant Association, 17% of U.S. restaurants have permanently closed. What's your outlook for the restaurant industry today as more people are finally dining out again? Yeah, side of business, we've actually seen demand come back very strong. So, you know, as our biggest market is New York City, is when that reopened uh, last month, restaurants were actually exceeding their 2019 uh, seated diner. 
uh, particularly not just from the demand inside the restaurant, but a lot of these restaurants added outdoor space. So, you know, I, I think there's a, a natural inclination for people to dine out, particularly when they've been stuck at home for a long time and they want to socialize and see friends and family. So the restaurants that did make it through this this pandemic are actually stronger than they were before. And, you know, Open Table did our bit as well. We waived our fees um, the whole, well, the last 12 months. So, you know, I think that helped keep a couple of rest, great restaurants in business. And, uh, you know, I'm, look, I'm looking forward to our business on that side of the ledger um, prospering again, probably more quickly than kayaks. How can Open Table though, support independent restaurant owners um, who, you know, were more likely to go out of business than these bigger conglomerates? Yeah, we, we had a, we put in place this, this COVID information hub that shared best practices for restaurateurs on, on what they could do to, to minimize the financial impact of the pandemic. So, you know, have a, the, for example, have a discussion with your landlord about your lease payments and see if you can get some forgiveness there. Uh, how to pivot to delivery and takeout, how to safely operate outdoor spaces, how to uh, improve your cleanliness procedures. And then finally, and this is what Open Table is really known for is, how to get diners into your restaurant and using your services. So use us to the full extent as your marketing partner too. And that 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 seemed to have worked pretty darn well. I, and I, you know, there has been a lot of reporting recently with uh, of the way Americans are reevaluating their quality of life and work. There have been many anecdotes, as I'm sure, that have trickled up to, to you about how uh, restaurants are trying to feverishly hire as many people as possible and are simply just not getting the applicants. Jobs are available, though. Um, do you believe that this is a signal that the restaurant industry needs to reevaluate the wages of their workers and, and the way workers are treated? I think that's been an a, a issue that has confronted the restaurant industry for, for many years. And I think overall, the, the tough part about it is restaurants are tough business to operate and they don't make very much money. So labor costs are going up, uh, ingredient costs are going up, and then their, their base rents and overheads are going up too. So that, that doesn't leave them with a lot of wiggle room. Um, one silver lining from the pandemic, though, I think, is restaurants can, can now see that they can get much more efficient with their staff. Uh, so do you really need a host stand, for example, when someone can just use an app to check in? Uh, can they just go to the table themselves? Do you need the same amount of tables per server if someone can actually order from an app and pay from an app? Uh, so th those efficiencies, I think, will will make the, the staffing crunch and the wages and productivity of, of workers go up. And I think that should solve what has been a, a perennial issue for restaurateurs, which is what's what's the fair way to attract and retain your staff. Steve, I want to get back to travel. Uh, prices of airline tickets have gone up again after dipping pretty low during the pandemic due to the lack of travel. Um, what have you seen from a, a pricing perspective and how far in advance do you think Americans need to start booking their travel again in order to, to get more reasonably priced airfare? Yeah, I mean, there's some deals to be had out there, but uh, there's fewer and fewer of them every day because leisure travel is back you know if you if you're taking a flight to mexico um which i, I consider is a leisure market um from the u.s you're gonna have a full flight and if you're going to florida or other beach destinations or even mountain destinations you're gonna have a full flight and when airlines have full flights they raise fares and that that's happening right now so you know i i encourage any of your your viewers 
who are considering a trip, even to Europe, by the way, this summer, um, to, to book it now if you can. Uh, actually, I am in the midst of planning my first for leisure international travel trip this summer. Where should I go? Any deals that you think I can get at the moment, specific pockets of the world um, that are uh, exceptionally cheap? Yeah, well, I mean, it all depends on what you're looking for. But right right now, Greece is open for business and Italy just opened its doors and both are fabulous destinations in Europe and uh, both are very reasonably priced, especially Greece. Uh, and before we wrap up, uh, just one more question. Are, is Kayak going to start providing guidance um, for users uh, of the website of how to um, travel in a uh, healthy way that's sort of cognizant of this post-pandemic world? Yeah, I mean, again, if, if you're vaccinated, the science says you're safe to travel and good to go anywhere you'd like to. Um, if you're if you're not vaccinated, then I think you want to pay more attention to what what the COVID status is in each of these areas that you're you're you may be interested in. You know, overall, I, I thought you were going to a sustainable travel question, which is something we also have a lot of passion for. And we've introduced new tools on Kayak about you know what's an eco-friendly flight, what's a sustainable destination to go to, and I think that's a trend that uh, will will outlive the the pandemic once we put that behind us. I'm actually going to ask about your sustainability push as well. If you, if there's anything more you want to add about that. Well, look, I mean, overall, travel is inherently polluting because if you get on an airplane, airplanes are are, are big um, adders of, of carbon to the environment. So, you know, what we try to do is is try to steer people to shorter flights, direct flights, more fuel efficient planes. Um, planes that have a higher uh, load factor, the percent of passengers who are on that, so that your overall uh, weighted carbon uh, footprint is smaller, and, uh, and and encourage people, especially within Europe and APAC, to use rail. So these are all great options. I think when people have uh, the data to make better decisions, they do so. I have one friend who actually um, plants uh, a bunch of trees uh, with each flight he takes, although I'm not sure uh, that is eliminating the carbon footprint that he's causing as much as, as he would like to believe. Um, unfortunately, though, Steve, we're out of time today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jackie. Great to see you. Stay with us, everyone. We're going to be back very shortly with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert in just a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. Most of us are emerging from our pandemic cocoons, and many of us are contemplating or undertaking travel, sometimes by air. So what can be done to ensure that we and those around us remain healthy in a crowded aviation environment? Here with some answers, Dr. Deepak Nath. He is president of Siemens Health and Ears Laboratory Diagnostics. Dr. Nath, great to have you with us. Let me ask you first, what should we as travelers be thinking about and doing? Gene, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, as travelers, first of all, we need to be aware that even as we, some of us are emerging from the cocoon that you uh, referenced, there are large parts of the world that are very much in the throes of this pandemic. There are hotspots all around the world that we need to be aware of. Second, that the access to vaccines are not uniform. There are uh, big parts, large parts of the world where people don't yet have um, access uh, to vaccines. 
and kids uh, around the world, particularly under the age of 12, are not yet eligible for vaccines. So therefore, not everyone is has the same level of protection uh, that some of us have. Uh, it's important for us all to be aware of those two factors. Second, to respect and follow the guidelines, uh, particularly as we traverse borders, to be aware of local uh, health guidelines and uh, and uh, and advisories, and to respect those. Uh, and third, to know our status, um, whether we have uh, antibodies levels post vaccination or post uh, uh, infection, natural infection, uh, or uh, to know whether we currently are. Uh, infectious because we are we're carrying the virus. So those are three things that we as travelers can be mindful of as we emerge from our cocoons, Gene. And what about testing? Airports and airlines are not in the healthcare business, uh, and yet some of them are setting up testing protocols. Uh, what can be done to make those as effective as they can possibly be? First off, over the course of the last year, uh, airports and airlines in the world have access uh, to a great suite of tests, high quality, uh, highly reliable and accurate tests. And uh, there's also a range of testing protocols where different testing solutions uh, can be brought to bear. So we're in a very different place than we were in the early stages of the pandemic. So as airlines uh, and airports seek to instill confidence among travelers and also uh, do their part in preventing the spread of this disease, uh, there are a range of testing solutions that they can access to provide the accurate, fast results um, from tests that, uh, that they need in order to keep uh, travelers who are infectious from boarding airplanes uh, and also uh, to instill confidence among the traveling public. Are there some examples of places where this is being done exceptionally well? Uh, yes, in Germany and Japan, for example, air, airlines or air airports have deployed uh, testing uh, protocols to screen uh, incoming uh, incoming passengers. Uh, there are uh, new solutions, for example, laboratory-based uh, antigen tests that offer fast, high-throughput and accurate uh, information about infection status uh, of travelers. So, um, for example, in Germany, a company called Centagene uh, that uh, is a diagnostic company that uses data-driven insights uh, to provide information about a range of diseases, uh, has gotten into uh, uh, corona or COVID testing in a big way and is able to offer a solution where travelers coming in uh, and, uh, or coming into an airport are able to get tested and within the course of an hour uh, have their results. Um, and those results are communicated directly uh, to the airlines with the passenger consent uh, so that only travelers who are negative or to test negative are able to board airplanes. So that's one example of a solution that's been deployed uh, in an airport in Germany that's able to facilitate travel across uh, national borders. What is the future going to look like? Is testing just going to be part of air travel for the foreseeable future? It's important to remember, Gene, that uh, we're still very much in the throes of the pandemic. Uh, while important advances have been made, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are parts of the world that are very much uh, in, the, in, in a hot spot. And it's going to take some time uh, before the impact of vaccines uh, are going to be felt on a global scale. So therefore, for the foreseeable future, we expect testing to be an important um, solution to enable uh, borders to open uh, for economies to uh, come back to life again, 
uh, but with the judicious use of high quality, reliable tests that are available as part of thoughtful testing protocols, we are able to open up borders. We are able to open up uh, travel again, uh, so that um, uh, so that people can go back to doing things that they were uh, doing before the pandemic. But it's going to take some time before we go back to uh, a fully normal state. Uh, but between now and then, testing will continue to play an important role. Is it important for travelers to keep in mind that this is being done for their benefit? Absolutely, Gene. It's important to remember. Uh, that uh, we all in, as individuals have a role uh, to play in, in knowing our status, doing our part uh, in preventing the spread, uh, but also to replace our trust uh, in healthcare authorities around the world uh, as they undertake programs in order to safeguard uh, the lives of, of the traveling public. Dr. Deepak Nath, thanks so much for joining us, President of Siemens Health and Ears Laboratory Diagnostics. And I will now hand things back to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Jackie Alamany, and I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert. The WNBA marks its 25th anniversary this year, and I have the proud distinction of saying that the first ever live sporting event I ever went to was the WNBA Liberty Game in New York City. So, Commissioner, welcome so much to the Washington Post Live. Hey, Jackie, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for having me on today. Likewise. After the pandemic, do you see new ways for our WNBA fans to engage outside of television, whether it be VR or other new technologies? Yeah, well, Jackie, it's so interesting because last year at this time we were in crisis mode. And, and one thing I learned over three decades in business is that a crisis tends to accelerate and deepen issues that existed before the crisis, but it's also an opportunity to fix the problem. So I think we used um, the, this crisis to have some changes stick, and I, I think some ways to be better, um, particularly around second screen experience. As you know, you know, everybody's, whenever you go to a sporting event, they're already holding a second screen, let alone uh, at home. And I think um, we've had, we had to be really nimble last year, going from millions of fans in our seats to zero. So I think like before COVID, the industry was just chipping away at the surface of technology and digital fans. And now I think it's going to be a new skill that we all had to get up to speed with. And, and it really amplified how young fans and digital natives consume content and how much that's drastically changed. Like you said, Jackie, whether it's streaming or reliance on digital platforms, but how do you focus on the data behind what our fans want? How can we target to grow our fan base? And these are all the things we're looking at. And last year we piloted something called Tap to Cheer on our app because we said fans still probably wanna you know, engage in some way. And we actually had 140 million taps during the season last year, and it was a shortened season during the pandemic. But um, you know, that was just like, wow, that, that fans will come and engage on digital and now using that data, how to draw fans in and keep them there. Did you actually find that WNBA fandom grew over the course of the pandemic when people were looking for an outlet, something to, to cheer on as everything else came to a standstill? Yeah, so yes, um, which uh, again, like I said, during a crisis, our weakness was we didn't have enough fans. We grew our fan base. We're now at 33 million fans total. Um, we grew our social presence, obviously all the great work by the players last year, because we really hit two crises, Jackie, at one time. We hit the pandemic and then uh, a racial justice crisis. And then 
Uh, we got thrown in the middle of a political campaign. So, I mean, think about everything the WNBA players accomplished last year and how important it was for them to have their voices heard. And I think, you know, some people already knew that what the WNBA players stood for, and I think now millions do as a result of, of there being a lot of people in quarantine in their homes, using their, again, second screen, um, you know, to also engage with uh, content. And, you know, we had huge increase in 68% increase in viewership last year. Uh, and then this year we're up 75% in the first five games. We're early in our season. We're a made October sport, but, you know, really, and the, the engagement on our social platforms and the players is just uh, through the roof. And, and before we get to the politics aspect of the conversation, um, you know, you had said in an interview with The Post recently uh, that there was a newly formed 25th season advisory council that included iconic players like Lisa Leslie and Rebecca Lobo, and that it was providing great marketing ideas to elevate the league. Can you share some of those ideas and um, some of the issues that the council has spotted and how the WNBA is working to fix them? Yeah, so one of the first things for people who are not following the WNBA, we are in our 25th season, the first women's professional sports league in the U.S. to get to 25 years, by the way, by double any other league. So so this is a time to capitalize on the momentum of being uh, in the 25th season. And, and as Jackie just said, we, we took some icons who were around at the time the league got launched, including Val Ackerman, who was the president in the first season of the WNBA and launched it with David Stern and Rick Welts. Rick Welts, who uh, Golden State Warriors fame now, he was at the beginning of the WNBA. And then players like Leslie and Lobo and Cheryl Swoops and um, Cynthia Cooper and so many others, Fran Harris, that are giving us innovative ideas. So the W25, we're going to have a fan engagement, fan voting about the 25 greatest players in WNBA history came from that group. Um, they gave us marketing ideas around our 25th anniversary logo, our Commissioner's Cup, which is a new competition we're standing up this year to get the players paid more with a half million dollar prize pool. Um, and um, the 25th greatest moments in WNBA history also came from that group. So we just continue to really be um, excited and, and to actually honor them in a look back in history, but also, you know, set forth what the future 25 years going forward is going to look like. And congratulations on, on hitting this 25th anniversary. Um, uh, but one of my favorite topics, um, which I think we've really seen an explosion of, is the intersection of social justice issues and sports teams. The WNBA Players Association has a social justice council that has been raising awareness about issues of racial and gender equity and LGBTQ rights. We saw back in March the stark contrast between the weight rooms provided for the NCAA men's basketball teams versus the women's. What's the WNBA doing this year to keep fans informed about these issues? And what do you hope comes from it? Well, first, I mean, I couldn't be more proud of the players. You know, what I call our social justice council, which is um, player-led but league-facilitated. So we do a ton of work surrounding the pillars of the Social Justice Council, which this year, I mean, these players are so smart this year. One of their pillars is health inequities, particularly in communities of color, and a focus on mental health. So um, really important. And, and if you think like every week, we're seeing now record numbers of fans tuning into women's sports. And why? I think because as um, you know, the fan population wants to engage in very socially conscious and community-minded athletes, women's sports and the WNBA players are where you go find that. So I think, you know, we're really excited um, with that, um, that momentum. 
Um, and you know, if you look at the NCAA women's, despite the controversy, the and I wrote an opinion piece on that controversy that it's way beyond the weight room. Um, but you know that that basketball tournament had 66% increase in viewership. You know, we were in the 60s. Women's softball, that's just in their super regional and their their college world series, is seeing most viewed you know, games, um, you know, so women's sports is here to stay. It's growing. We also see companies seeing the value and this Jackie is the most important part. And for those that don't know, Jackie was a co right, college basketball player. Um, they're seeing the value in partnering with women's sports and female athletes like Brianna Stewart, one of our, our reigning MVP of the WNBA finals last year, just signed with Puma and will have a signature shoe and Sabrina Ionescu with Nike. And, um, you know, we just had a CarMax commercial that featured Sue Bird with Steph Curry uh, that got a lot of attention. And then a State Farm one with Sabrina and Chris Paul, an NBA player. So just, you know, the recognition is long overdue. There's still a lot of work to do, particularly around how women's sports is valued, but I intend not to rest until that's transformed. Well, and it is, you know, I think obviously it must be a center of your focus to make sure that women are getting the same um, are reaping the same rewards and uh, very well-deserved attention as men's players. Um, but I think, you know, there was a, a lot of news coverage and attention devoted to the political efforts of uh, players in the NBA, um, where, but, you know, we uh, have had our sports reporters write actually a number of stories at the Post about how um, WNBA players actually, uh, I think, ultimately emerged as um, even more of leaders in this realm when it came to incurring change. For example, the push to start wearing hoodies and publicly supporting um, Senate candidate and now Senator Raphael Warnock. Uh, how do you think this ultimately has helped boosted the profile of the WNBA, this, this social justice and political um, push that we've seen from players like Sue Bird? Yeah, and, and I, that's a great uh, question and kind of uh, a great lead in because the thing I learned, and I've only been in the league close to two years now, is that the WNBA players have always been doing this. It wasn't just because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and everything that happened last summer. They've always been activists in the social justice area, and they've always done so much work. You know, the former MVP and, and, and WNBA champion, Maya Moore, I wasn't even in the league yet. She took a uh, a year off and now a few years off to work on criminal justice reform. We've got Natasha Cloud, who's got an amazing platform. Renee Montgomery, who just retired from the league and now has taken her platform to become a part owner in one of our teams. Uh, and so if you just think about everything um, they have worked on and now, like I said, you know, maybe before last year, you know, some people knew about Maya Moore, but now millions know how engaged civically the the Atlanta Dream specifically with um, new owners there now, and how just all the WNBA players like Sue and others and Neka Ogumake, who is the leader of the Players Association, she's the player president on the executive committee, um, and she's been such a great advocate um, for civic engagement and was very involved in in voting and civic process this past election cycle. So again, I there's probably not a WNBA player that doesn't really get really in their communities and and really civically engaged. And it's so impressive. It's, Jackie, it's such an impressive part. And I did not know all this when I came in the league, but I think what's important is they've been doing it for a long time, not just for the last year. And, and I'm not sure if you are going to be able to answer this question. It's probably, you know, something that the Social Justice Council is working on, but the 
George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is currently stalled in the Senate. That's something that your players and NBA players have been um, lobbying for and, and in support of. Uh, are there any next steps planned in pushing to get this legislation passed to, to finally break this stalemate that we're seeing in the Senate? Yeah, I think as you've seen, again, using their social platforms, the WNBA players have really been advocating for the right answer here. So, I mean, it's certainly something, whether it's voting rights or access, you know, to, to other legislation, um, as far as advocating, they are there. And as I said, health equity, civic engagement and voting rights, LGBTQ rights, um, and then on the mental health side, very important. So I think all of those um, are an important part of the Social Justice Con uh, uh, Council's work. And again, as I said, it is player-led, league-facilitated, so we are doing a lot of work behind the scenes to help our players. And, and one shout-out for in, um, our Indiana Fever team. They partnered with Anthem and Indiana University to put on a program for WNBA players on the Indiana Fever called Athlete to Activist. You know, really, because you think about how activist you need to be in today's environment as an athlete. And it was a great program that um, our players went through, a five-week program with Indiana University and Anthem helped us sponsor that. And it was amazing. And a year ago, in an interview with The Post, you had said that your two must-haves to keep the momentum going were competitive season with competitive players. Momentum appears to be a big theme with you and what you're trying to do. How do you want to use this momentum to position the WNBA in the next five years? Yeah, so Jackie, really important is to, I'm a big studier of sports. And again, the NBA will be in their 100th year in the fall. NFL just had 100 years and NHL's even longer. So big studier of sports and how how you look at building household names, building rivalries. One of the things that emerged in the first half of the season so far is, um, you know, conference rivalries because we introduced this new, uh, you know, competitive part of our season called the Commissioner's Cup, where, you know, again, players will fight for an additional prize pool. So it's really building household names and and building rivalries so that you have compelling content that everyone wants to watch, and that's how you draw in fans. That's how you change the economic model. That's how you change the valuation model from today's decades old looking at metrics that I think are highly dis heavily discounted off, off the men's model. So that's, that's what we're trying to disrupt. And um, it's a big transformation and we're gonna need the whole ecosystem to participate in it. So that's why I'm, I'm working uh, pretty hard on that because I think you know we've seen the momentum. We just signed Google as our newest WNBA change maker. Amazon Prime Video first, you know, basketball that they're streaming now. They have a game of the week and they'll, they'll do our Commissioner Cup um, uh, final. Uh, ESPN has been a great partner over so many years and continues to up their game as well with the 25 for 25. So, so a lot to transform, a lot to be disrupted, but, you know, we're, we're ready for it. And I think the momentum's never been better. And how much of, of that momentum do you think is contingent upon women's players uh, and they're being achieving parity between men's and women's sports and players yeah we, we don't really i mean you can't as a as a, a league of our size and scale 12 teams in 12 cities 144 players we don't compare ourselves to the men's side that is not the goal the goal is to get these players recognized to get them paid to give them benefits to treat them like 
working women, professional working women that they are. They just happen to be their craft that they're best at right now is sports, but also to work on what they're going to do their post-playing career, because that's important to me as well. So we're working on internships and other things with companies who are sponsors and even some who are not. So, I mean, there's so many um, opportunities, I think, especially with our league, a diverse league of 80 over 80 percent women of color. Um, and these these uh, players are, are so incredibly intelligent and smart, and I think any company would want to have them. So it's multidimensional. It's a business transformation, uh, and it's really bringing in more marketing partners and certainly more media partners to to drive um, you know their experience as a player to the next level. And obviously, whenever you put in new benefits and new pay structure, you need funding. So uh, that's why we're focused so much on the valuation model as as well. Would you like to see some more assistance, though, from the NBA in terms of advocacy, partnerships, uh, and, and support in getting this done? Would, would that be helpful? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but the NBA is the reason why we've been around for 25 years. They're huge advocates. They're hugely supportive. We share some infrastructure. Um, but, you know, I, as the commissioner, have the ability, work with Adam Silver, but have the ability to run this league and drive this league to a higher level. So they've been huge advocates and the players. I mean, look at the orange hoodie and the success of the WNBA orange hoodie. For those that haven't seen it, you know, um, you can get it at Nike.com or Fanatics, but um, huge top 10 in the NBA store last year. So merch is part of the brand and lifts the brand. Reason it got so popular was Kobe Bryant wore it before that awful tragedy with Gigi and um, those other young basketball players and their families. And then NBA players uh, started wearing it in their bubble last season. And that's continued with advocates and influencers. And again, content is king right now. So capturing that content raises the brand. And, and when they see a Steph Curry or LeBron or KD or Kyrie wearing the WNBA orange hoodie, you know, it becomes a signal and a symbol of, of advocacy for women. And so we're just a microcosm of the broader world around men as advocates for, for women. And I think we have a great partner in the NBA and the NBA players in that. And, and I know many of them are mentor, mentored and mentoring uh, across leagues, uh, those players. Um, and and I, I couldn't be happier with how all that's going. And WNBA finals are going to be held, I believe, in Phoenix, Arizona at the later this summer. Uh, Arizona is one of the states where Republicans are currently conducting an election audit of the 2020 election. And Governor Republican Governor Doug Ducey uh, recently signed into law a, a limiting of the distribution of mail ballots. Would you consider moving the finals out of the state if these restrictions continue? Yeah, let me clarify. So our WNBA finals will occur in the home markets of uh, the WNBA teams that make it into the finals. So there'll be two teams that make it. It's the Commissioner's Cup. Um, that is one game that we um, are scheduled to play in Phoenix. Obviously, we consider voting rights and access to be critical components of justice. And we know there's a lot of work going on and our players are doing a lot of work. Our Social Justice Council has this as one of their three pillars. Um, and continue to be civically engaged in all the states where they're advocating for the preservation of constitutional rights wherever they may be threatened. So we'll continue uh, we'll continue that fight. But that that Commissioner Cup game is just one game in Phoenix. By the way, it comes off the Olympic break, and because of health and safety protocols, there's only so many places we can hold that game. Uh, and so it's one game, important game for building rivalries and paying a half million dollar prize pool to the players. But we'll we'll continue to monitor. 
uh, the legislation in various states, it's not just Arizona, in various states, as, as the voting rights and access have been, the, uh, you know, one of the three pillars of our Social Justice Council. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, so just to, to be clear, uh, in the case that the finals take place in um, between two teams in which uh, one of the states is actively implementing more voting restrictions, you would reassess whether or not to, to host those finals there. Yeah, we would certainly monitor what, um, and it's not just voting rights legislation, there's a myriad of legislation in many states going on right now. I think, again, it's a reflection of the divisiveness in the country, and we continue to work with our elected leaders as well as our community leaders uh, on the fight for justice. And, and so, yeah, well, we're always monitoring things. You know, to be a leader in today's environment, whether you're a business leader, a nonprofit leader, a government leader, a sports leader like myself, you're, you're always monitoring um, these issues, which I think is why it's so important to be impactful in any social justice um, activities is, is, and our players are, have been very impactful and want to continue to be um, impactful in, in the fight because they're used to fighting for everything that they uh, have advocated for. And so this, this absolutely, we would monitor that and make decisions based on, you know, those events. Our finals are in October. Uh, so obviously we'll be monitoring over the course of the summer coming off the Olympic break into the into the WNBA finals. That was going to be my next question about sort of the, the challenging role that you find yourself in trying to balance all of these at times competing interests. In your opinion, are, are these issues of social justice, parity, police reform, et cetera, all of the things that your players are so passionate about uh, and have rallied around, are, are these all bigger than basketball for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. You know, when I was the CEO of Deloitte, I saw you know this trend of employee activism. We weren't in sports, didn't have that profile, but employee activism over the four or five years um, towards the end before I retired from there, and how employees were stepping up with their voice and and you know they wanted me to speak out on every single issue. And I kind of used to say, you know, if you use your voice on everything, you lose your voice a little bit. So find the things that are important and match your values and make sure then you have a strategy around how to activate around the advocacy for those things. So it, it is not easy. I think every CEO um, in America and globally is struggling with when to use their voice, how to use their voice. Um, you know, I was blessed to have a long 33 year career where I saw a lot of ups and downs as it related to the divisiveness in this country and the, the, the crises that we all went through, um, the financial crisis of 07, 08 and others before that. And then obviously the pandemic and the social justice and racial injustice crisis. So, you know, there's always something, you know, to balance, but that's why I think you need to be very strategic about it. It needs to be in our case, Player-led, I used to say, you know, we ran a, a, a very people-led agenda at Deloitte. Now it's very player-led agenda here and listen. But by the way, one thing I learned a lot in our bubble or wubble, as it was affectionately called last year, is to really listen. Listen to the burden that these women and women of color have taken on in the social justice crisis and make sure that you're supporting them, you're amplifying them. Uh, and you know, um, offer various education sessions, bring in social justice strategists because these players are not. So yes, Jackie, it is bigger than basketball. I think the play that was part of when we kind of signed on to playing in a bubble last year during the pandemic and the and the racial justice crisis. I mean, that was part of it. Is that we're we're going to support the players and what they're doing. 
um, and it's going to be really important to amplify what they're doing, and that's what we will continue to do go in the, during this season. But it's it's not easy now to be a leader uh, and determine where to find you know your advocacy because I you know I do think you have to um, really look at the impact you can make, and you can't boil the ocean, but you have to be very focused about how you do it. That's really in insightful advice, I think, especially uh, coming on the heels of this conversation that we've seen sparked from someone like Naomi Osaka uh, and about athletes and mental health and, and what the, the span of issues that women are dealing with today. Um, unfortunately, though, we're out of time. Kathy Engelbert, thanks so much for joining us today and for making time for me. Thank you, Jackie. Great to see you again. Take care. Stay, stay, stay safe. Please come back and join Washington Post Live tomorrow at 2 p.m. My colleague Jeff Edgars will interview Irish singer-songwriter Sinead O'Connor about some of her most memorable pop culture moments detailed in her new memoir, Rememberings. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm Jackie Alamani. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.